As I thought about how we would do this today, I realized that if I memorized it, it would be okay. I'd be going around in circles like usual, but I haven't memorized it. And so I realize that you've got my back and you're behind me, but I know that that's not the way I'm going to do it. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is just pick this up like so, put it here, try to figure out the logistics, which are pretty intricate here, and move over here. You'll still be behind me, but uh, that'll be a little better. Now, I don't know about you, but I've lived in uh, this area now for uh, this week, started the 18th year, and I don't know when I've ever been more proud of this city. How about you? What a wonderful thing, and I'm so grateful to be living in Indianapolis on this particular week. And I hope you have a super day today, as everyone's been saying week after week uh, these last few weeks. Through the years, I've often asked the question, uh, when I'm starting with a new group, or uh, possibly a small group, or maybe it's a staff, let's share with each other a little bit about what the first and, and the greatest sense of warmth that we had in our first home of our remembrance. Think about that a moment. If I were asking you that question and had given you a chance to respond, how would you respond? What was the place of greatest warmth in your first home of remembrance? Some people will say the fireplace. Some people will say sitting next to uh, the, the heating duct. Other people will mention a certain room. And you know what the answer that I hear the most is? around the kitchen table. For it's around the kitchen table that often conversations are had, around meals together and a chance to eat together and kind of process our day together. It's around the kitchen table that often after someone comes home from school and there's a snack or after a busy day at work, you just sit down together and, and just have a chance to talk about what life is like. It's kind of a shame that we as families today because of busy schedules, whether it's work, whether it's sports, whatever it might be, we don't spend as much time around the kitchen table. You know, with that thought in mind, in the last church that I served in Southport in my office, we put a dining room table in my office. And that was so great. We had committee meetings. We had accountability meetings. We had leadership team meetings. All kinds of meetings right there. And maybe the most special was meeting with lots of couples that were going to be married or couples that were dealing with issues. And it felt at home. It felt like we were together, not just on my turf, but on their, their turf too, as we spent time around the table. Meals around tables are wonderful places for the family of faith. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed the fellowship lunch that we had last week. A chance to sit around tables and get to know each other better. Relationships are so key to the family of faith. And I don't know about you, but I really miss potluck dinners, you know, where people bring their specialties and a chance to have an opportunity to eat that which is the best thing that I make, usually. That's the way it goes. Well, in Acts chapter 2, the passage that Pat dealt with a couple of weeks ago, the early church did a lot around tables. They ate together. They worshiped together around tables. This morning, as we look briefly at this idea of gathered around the same table, 
for communion, the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about one of the sacraments that we have. And we as Presbyterians have two sacraments, baptism being the other one. Certainly a sacrament is an outward, visible symbol of an inward truth that's very important. A sacrament is a living out or a reenacting of something very, very special in the life of Jesus and his ministry. And he's asked us to remember him through that kind of drama that takes place. A sacrament allows us to be renewed in our faith in a new and a fresh way as we gather around one table together. Today I want to read the familiar words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 34, and I'd like for you to follow along with me, if you would, either on the screen or in your Bibles, if you have them, in your pew Bibles. And I want us today, as we look at this chapter, which is familiar, this passage which we use when we have communion every time, I want us to look at three tables. Oh, that first Lord's Supper table in the upper room as part of the Passover. I want us to try to think of what that table must have been like in Corinth, And then I want us to look seriously at this table for us today. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 34. If you would, again, follow along with me as I read. Listen now for the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves... We would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. May God add his blessing, understanding, and application upon this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please join me now in prayer. God, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather around your table today. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for each person's likes and dislikes, for each person's gifts, the subject that we talked about last week. And most especially, I'm grateful that your spirit, that one spirit, brings us together, unites us, knits us together in your love. 
in these few moments before we partake of this meal, speak to us here today, I pray. Speak to the preacher and the people alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Let's first look at that table in the upper room at the end of the Passover dinner. Now, it's important to note that it was, again, the Passover Thursday, uh, when uh, just before the next day, Jesus would be crucified. It had been an action-filled week. I mean, the Sunday before, there was a triumphal entry, that great processional into the city. And uh, also, that week, Jesus had dueled with religious leaders, and he'd come out on top. He'd had a chance to teach, and his disciples must have been so filled what was happening, they thought, maybe this will be the moment. This will be the moment of fulfillment, that Kairos moment, when Jesus will set up his kingdom, when he'll prove that he's the Messiah. And certainly that uh, time not long before that, when Jesus had raised Lazarus, had made his popularity grow exponentially. Jesus had emptied himself before the meal as he looked, as he took each of the disciples one by one and washed their feet, caring for them tenderly. And I can see him looking in each one of their eyes as he washes their feet. We talked about this in the Life Changes Bible study this week and really got into that whole idea. They'd done everything that they were supposed to do as the ritual for the, uh, the Passover, and now it was time, they thought, to conclude. But at that point, Jesus stands up. And as Jesus stands up, they weren't ready for what he had to say. I mean, the disciples were expecting that he'd be the new Moses who would lead them out of the bondage of the Romans. They thought he would be the new David who would set up a kingdom. And they were wondering kind of quietly to themselves, who's the greatest? Who's the one who's going to uh, have a place, maybe the place of prominence in his new regime? All of that was going on. But as Jesus looks at each one of them, he takes the bread first and he breaks it. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. <laughs> the disciples were thinking, he's gone paranoid on us. This week has taken its toll. He needs desperately uh, to get away, to have a vacation. He needs some rest. He's so wrapped up in all that's going on. Certainly, the next day, Jesus would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just as he had said of him when he first started his ministry with John the, ba John the Baptist pointed and said that. In a graphic way, Jesus sets up this sacrament by sharing his life with them. There was so much the disciples didn't understand, and maybe today, if the truth be known, maybe you and I are still processing some of what happened there in our lives today. Well, let's move to the second table. The second table was the Lord's Supper as it was served in Corinth. Now, unlike the way that we usually celebrate uh, this sacrament, uh, as we will today, the early church followers were probably a little bit closer to what uh, the Passover meal was like. 
where they had a potluck dinner ahead of time and they called it an agape meal. I mean, that was a time when they ate together and they shared together. And as I said last week, Corinth was really a place known for its immorality. It was, at the, the south, it was on the southern coast of, uh, of Greece, and it was a place where many of them had, uh, in the past, worshipped at the temple of Epaphrodite. All kinds of pagan worship took place there. So this was completely different. And for them, it was a radical move to have uh, a love feast or a, an agape meal like this. And what happened was, those people who had means, those people who were richer, brought lots of food. And uh, often they started before some of the others got there. And they, as, as I read it and read between the lines, many times they ate them all that they could eat and even more, but they didn't share with people who had nothing. And can you imagine how that made those who came late feel? And can you imagine how they felt as they ate? And then it was also BYOB, bring your own bottle, as it were. And that's what they did. And, uh, and many of them also drank just a little bit too much. Instead of being filled with the spirit, they were filled with spirits. So some of them, by the time they got to the, the meal, uh, uh, the communion itself, were probably about three sheets to the wind. So, can you imagine the divisions, both sides? Those who had looking down their noses and feeling superior, and those who had not, just shaking their heads and saying, this is the way it's always been for us. We thought maybe church would be different, but it's not. And so there were divisions. Can you imagine how that must have been? And Paul says to them, if you're hungry when you come, don't come. Eat ahead of time. Drink ahead of time. Don't come here to get your fill like that. And then he hearkens back to that first Lord's Supper at the Passover table. And he, instead of dividing them, he said that the table should bring them together. It should unite them through the power of the Spirit. Now, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And koinonia means to share all things, to have things in common, from which come the word common union, communion, which is what we call this, or common unity, community, which is what we have here. Paul goes on to say that the Lord's Supper was a holy meal, and it was not to be taken lightly. And all who gather around this table should examine themselves before they come to eat, realizing that they can bring judgment on themselves if they take lightly and demean others. When genuine examination took place, Paul felt that the Spirit would convict them of their abuses and they would come together and hopefully the divisions would melt away. What Jesus had intended to bring people together brought divisions. And you know, through the centuries, this table has separated all kinds of people. Think of some other denominations maybe, places where you might have gone who were very sincere, but you weren't allowed to come to the table. Or there may be people here today who said, I've never, I've never worshipped in the round like this, or I've never been a part of a Presbyterian church and don't really feel at home. Oh, we pray that this table brings us together and that we're renewed by the Spirit.
And let us move to the third table, which would be this table here today as we celebrate. While 2,000 years separate us from those first two tables, we have the same host, the same one who sets the table for us. And it's none other than Jesus the Christ who stands before us. Maybe we're a little bit closer to that second table, the one in Corinth, than we are the Passover meal. And there's a sense in both, like both of those tables, that we gather around here today remembering the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, who loved us enough to allow his body to literally be broken and his blood to be outpoured for us. As was true for them, we're certainly living in a world filled with uncertainty, aren't we? We're living in a world where there's a lot of change. We're living in a world where there's hostility. This table calls us to place our ultimate trust in the Christ who set this table for us, a Christ who has always been faithful in all times, in all seasons, in all kinds of changes, and promises us that he will be faithful to us no matter what the situation might be in the future. I believe that, like them, we are aided by the same Holy Spirit. And you and I, as we gather around this table today, this one table, are called to examine our lives as we view these signs of God's grace that are visually demonstrated for us in the bread and in the juice. And then as we look at our own selves, maybe you and I feel unclean. Maybe in all kinds of ways we feel unworthy. And possibly, possibly, for some of you it may be because if the truth be known, you've never developed a relationship with the one who came as the host. Maybe you've never partaken of the one who said, I am the bread of life. Maybe the one who said, I am the living water, and you're thirsty today, but you've never taken of him. If you're hungry for that relationship, that relationship which brings forgiveness for our past, which brings joy and peace for our present, which brings hope for our future, then come to this table. Come and allow this Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. Maybe as you examine your life and you're feeling unworthy, maybe you've begun that relationship in the past, but somehow you know that even though he's been faithful, that you've strayed, that you haven't kept your side of the commitment, and often that's the case with many of us. This is a chance to come back again, to confess those things that you know aren't right in your life as you view the symbols of God's love and grace, as you realize that he gives us second chances. Oh, dear friends, if you are genuinely sorry and are repentant today, then don't stay away from this table. Oh, no. Run to this table. Come to this table and experience relief, and the joy of reconciliation. Maybe, if the truth be known, this table has become kind of commonplace. Maybe uh, you've been coming to it for many years from all the days of your remembrance. 
And so you can kind of go on autopilot when we move into communion. It's a little more difficult today since we're in a different setting, that's for sure. But maybe that's the way it works. Could it be that today God wants to show you and me something new and fresh, that he wants to renew us by his Spirit as we view once again Jesus' love and grace for us? Maybe like the people of Corinth, as you gather around this table, you realize that you're holding a grudge in some shape or form and feel separated. Maybe it's from someone in this room. Maybe it's from someone on the outside. Maybe it's a family member. I don't know who that might be. But I challenge you as you come to this table, as you examine your life, that you make a commitment right now before God that after you leave this service, you're going to go and maybe have a conversation Maybe it'll be an embrace, a reconciliation. Maybe it'll mean making a visit this week or making a phone call, an email, a note, whatever it might be, so that there might be reconciliation. This is a table of communion, of unity. And to go one step further, as we are renewed by the Spirit, as we gather around this table, Jesus is calling us to be broken just like he was broken, if we're his followers. He's calling us to allow our lives to be poured out to those around us, just like he did. There's a world out there that is watching us and a world out there that desperately needs our Jesus in the most positive, tantalizing ways. As individuals and as a church, I believe that we're called to empty ourselves like Jesus did in loving service to that world. Dear friends, Jesus, the now risen and reigning Lord, stands before us. He's before us at this table. And as he stands before us, he says, come, come, the meal is ready, come. And as he stands before us, you can see on his hands are the nail prints that symbolize that his body was broken. And as you think of what happened so many years ago at the cross, you can visualize the fact that his blood was shed for us. He calls us to come, no matter what our situation might be, to come and experience what he has to give us, to come and find new life, to find new hope, to find an opportunity to reach out and give yourself away to others. Please join me in prayer. God, as we gather around this table today, we realize that the feast is ready. It's a feast greater than any feast we could possibly visualize, even though it is simple. And in some cases, it feels commonplace to us. We realize that what you have done here is the greatest gift that was ever given. What you have done here in this meal is the greatest expression of love and grace that has ever been known to humankind. And now, God, as we gather around this meal, we pray that you would set aside these elements for their intended purpose. As we partake of them, help us, God. Help us to examine our lives and wherever we might be, help us to come closer to you. 
And if we're feeling estranged from you and from others, God, help us to make it right and then to run to this table in celebration and in joy for what you have done. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus the Christ, who taught his disciples to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.